Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. It's more than just a podcast. It's a source of insights to keep you tapped into all things data-driven so that you can be the most informed technical expert in the virtual room. Listen in weekly to stay educated on the latest trends in backup, recovery, storage, cloud, and security. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and on this episode of Data Protection Gumbo, I have Martez Reed, Director of Technical Marketing at Morpheus Data. Also, Martez has spent the last eight years working with enterprise organizations, building automation and orchestration solutions. He started his career in systems administration and has pivoted to automation as a primary focus. So Martez, welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. How are you? Thanks for having me again, Demetrius. I'm doing excellent. All right. So let's start off with a light question so I can ease you into the conversation here, if you don't mind. And maybe, okay, security and data breaches, maybe that's not easing in because that can be a, a heavy topic at times. But let's say, you know, given the frequency uh, of data breaches, because it's almost happening daily or weekly that you turn on the news or you open your email and you just see another ransomware attack or breach somewhere. So from your perspective, um, how has the industry or do you think the industry has become numb to the frequency of data breaches? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's a great question. I think one of the challenges is that it's, uh, as we've said, the frequency and it, like, I think if you look at the numbers, it's probably one every couple of minutes in terms of a data breach. And sort of the, the challenge becomes either as a, a consumer, even though you might be an IT professional, you, you shop at this store, you go to this hotel, you, 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 you transact with this business and, and you become aware of like, oh man, they're asking me to change my password or, hey, maybe I need to see about changing my credit card or um, e even worse, potentially as a, a social security number for those that are in America. Some of the, those challenges of the, the loss of information. But I, I think as a, an IT practitioner looking from the outside in, oftentimes you see data breach, you see data breach, but oftentimes I think as a technologist, you're, you're thinking more so from the, the technical facets of it and say, okay, well, unfortunately, another data breach, another data breach. And, and, and I think you come a little bit desensitized to the, the human impact of it, of somebody's information was, was, was hacked and, and now they've got to try and get a no, new social security card number or check their bank account or uh, subscribe for some identity theft protection. And, and there's definitely a, a lot of human implications that I, I think sometimes are, are, are lost in the sort of the ones and zeros, so to speak. Yeah. And you know what? They're getting more sophisticated with it because I got a phone call from quote unquote Ameris Bank not too long ago. And literally it was so close to me thinking that this was like a real attempt on my account. And uh, they sent me a text message and said, hey, th did you do this transaction? Reply back, yes or no. I sent an N back for no. And minutes later, I got a phone call from someone saying that they were in the customer support for that. And then they started asking me all these questions. And once they got to, hey, what's, you know, what's your username? I was like, uh, 
you know what? I don't feel comfortable giving you that information, so I'm going to hang up and I'll call Ameris Bank directly. Yeah, it, it's challenging for even those of us that are, that are in IT and, and know all the, the things to sort of do. It, it's, it's, they, they can still catch you off guard and let alone imagine someone's 80-year-old uh, grandmother or, or <laughs> trying to figure out, do I give them the information? Don't I give them the information? And so it's definitely a, a, a difficult situation. Yeah, and I love to think this way, like if you are the, the, the hacker or whoever you are, or if you are the bank, you should know, you should have certain pieces of information. So all I should be doing is just maybe saying yes or no and not giving, you know, hard facts about, you know, who I am and last four of your social and, you know, just details from that perspective. But there are things out there that we continue to hear in the market, like, um, immutability and zero trust. And, you know, there's a, a whole list of, of things in the security side of the house. Uh, my question for you, Martez, though, is what role will zero trust play in the future of data protection and securing data? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a, a, another thing that, as you mentioned, comes up quite a lot now is zero trust this, zero trust that. Uh, and in many ways, the, the challenge becomes, what does zero trust really mean? And of course, you, you get people on social media talking about, well, zero trust is more of an architecture or a framework as opposed to a, a point or given solution from any one vendor. And so it does encompass a number of different technologies, such as the idea of micro segmentation of ensuring that, let's say, Jim's laptop can't talk directly to Susie's laptop because more often than not, there's not going to be a need for those two endpoints to talk directly together. And so that helps prevent or reduce the possibility of lateral movement from hacker gets into the Jim's laptop. Now he starts to move across the network and starts to discover more and more devices. Those are definitely great things from a security posture standpoint. And then certainly the idea of being able to, to provide better security for applications and in terms of how they respond. Um, and, and for me, the, the at its core, the, the idea is not to trust inherently any given resource or object. The challenge becomes when you start to think about oftentimes how the ransomware is, is taking place and spreading across the network. Even if you take the specific example of hacker gets into the laptop, accesses the system, and now has access to the, the file share. Well, the file share has to trust that person as well as that endpoint because in order for somebody to do their job, they need to go to the file share, put files, retrieve files. And so that was where it becomes a, a little more challenging. I certainly love the idea of enhancing the security posture, but I think there's some fundamental things we've got to, to figure out as an industry to address in terms of does it make sense for, for Jim or Jim's laptop to access I don't know, let's say 10,000 files in two minutes. That, mm. that probably isn't what Jim's going <laughs> to be doing, trying to read all 10,000 files in two minutes. So I think there's right. some things where we can it, focus on what are the common use cases and certainly continue to enhance security from that standpoint. But I think zero trust is definitely a, a great starting point. Okay, yeah, I used to hear it a lot, but I, I don't hear it as much as I used to because it was a, everyone was using that term, zero trust architecture, zero trust this, zero trust that. And it's almost when cloud became this thing and everyone you know, wanted to say, oh, it's, it's in the cloud or cloud this or cloud that. Um, also, something else that I remember reading not too long ago about hypervisors being hijacked. I think they're calling it 
hyperjacking. So they they hijack the hypervisor and take over the virtual machine. Not sure if you've heard of it before, but I thought that that was real scary to. Yeah, yeah. definitely have heard of it. I mean, it, it's happening more and more with uh, talking about ransomware on, on VMware ESXi host, which certainly is a, a large uh, part of uh, IT organizations' estates. And, and the challenge becomes that you, essentially you're, you're, you're getting to the core of the infrastructure. And so now if I've got access to your, your underpinnings, now I can access all the, the thousands and thousands of virtual machines and the applications running on top of those and uh, effectively cripple the organization. Right, yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely a, a new age that, that we're living in right now, especially post-COVID and the digitization of everything. Also, data is just, you know, we're storing data everywhere. So we have our phones and we're on these social media platforms like IG and TikTok and the list goes on, right? Every time we, we respond and we type something or upload something, we're storing data. So I want to find out from you. I just want to get your thoughts and feelings around the length of time it takes. I mean, like we're storing data for, you know, maybe a year, but you don't know how long your data is being stored with a social media platform, right? So how do you feel about, I guess, how long personal data is stored or, or around that perspective? Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, very alarming. I know I, I think I just saw a uh, an article or a post the other day about a, a startup looking to to provide you with access to a history of everything you, you've searched, of everything you've said, uh, of everything that essentially you've done. And it, it's, it's, it's pretty scary to, to think the the idea of that and i know we've got um certainly from the the the, uh, european side uh, of things like gdpr to to help combat some of that uh but some of the and even some of the the privacy laws as it relates to what california has done Uh, but the the challenge really becomes if i as a a consumer give you my my email address obviously email address is one thing we start talking about first name and last name but even when we get to the the idea of a let's say a credit card number um, uh, in theory, I should be able to ask you to remove that credit card number or just not store it at all um, in, in terms of the, the transaction. And obviously, there are certain implications in regards to whether it's PCI or, or certain requirements that I, I know certain details about the transaction do need to be stored for an extended period of time. But ideally, I, I don't want my, my credit card information to be stored indefinitely or some other personal details like my social security card number. Um, and, and if you need that information, I would say, then I'm... Personally, uh, I, I'm more than happy to provide that. If you call me up and say, hey, we need to enter in XYZ information. Can you log into the website and fill out this form or whatever it might be for this one-time use of that information? Uh, I'm more than happy, which is goes right into some of the, the interesting juxtaposition, so to speak, of... As an IT administrator, a lot of what we're looking at now is things like short-lived credentials or how to how do I reduce the uh, an attacker's ability to be able to get my information? Oh, that's by essentially providing one-time passwords and things like that. And and, and my my thought would be in a similar fashion, it, it should be a one-time request for this information that says it, these pieces of sensitive information you're going to request it from me, and then. I want you to have to request it from me once again in order to be able to make use of that information. Certainly, there may be an option where I said, you know, I want to opt in. I'm going to allow you to to keep this information for whatever extended period of time. But I may also want the option that says, you know what, I don't want you to keep that information 
let me provide you with the information when I, when you need to use it. Yeah, and I know there are certain compliance uh, regulations that are out there that corporations are locked into how long that they do have to retain you know, certain different pieces of information and PII, et cetera, uh, depending on whether it's financial services or it's healthcare. Um, I know those things come into play. Also, since we are in this this cloud era where, you know, you mentioned cloud, everyone says, oh, wow, yeah, it's, it's cool to run in the cloud, but it depends, you know, how large and how many systems and, you know, where you are, I guess, in the stage of the size of your company, how many employees you have, whether you still need some systems on-prem and you, and, you, and you don't run anything there or you run things in the cloud. But my question is, how has the, let's say public cloud, how has that impacted the industry's ability to secure data and to keep data secure? Yeah, it's, it's definitely opened up a, a number of different possibilities, whether that be from the, the vendor or the provider side to be able to, to leverage and provide SaaS-based solutions to help provide data protection and, and additional security of data. So definitely in those cases, very much a win. And even from the, let's say the, the, the business standpoint of uh, the enterprises and uh, various others of leveraging public cloud services to continue to build out their infrastructure in a highly available, uh, highly elastic manner definitely benefits there. Um, and in terms of a number of the, the capabilities that cloud providers have unlocked that uh, weren't previously available either on-prem or hadn't been introduced uh, because of, of software or hardware that wasn't available yet. Certainly that provides a, a number of additional opportunities to leverage additional ways in which to secure the data that just didn't exist. Uh, one of the challenges I see though is the growth that I think the industry is experiencing in terms of consumption. When you start talking about an organization having uh, hundreds or even potentially thousands of AWS accounts, then it, it starts to become very difficult to, to corral all the places where data could be. And so when you're talking those thousands of AWS accounts, you're potentially talking maybe uh, somewhere uh, order of a magnitude of maybe 50 to 100,000 things like S3 buckets or uh, databases or Elasticsearch clusters that may have been deployed out in a dev environment or a sandbox environment. And, and so now you're trying to wade through thousands and thousands and thousands of objects and resources. And somebody said, you know what, I just need to, to move this one piece of data that might be a social security card number or a couple of documents. Okay, well, I'm just going to throw it in the S3 bucket. It becomes becomes all too alluring to just say, you know what? Yeah. You know, I know this isn't the right thing to do or the best way to do it, but I just need to move it real quick. And, and then real quick becomes, oh, well, yeah. everybody's kind of using it or I've used it sort of as my temporary store and like, okay, no harm, no foul. And then all of a sudden something comes up where, okay, that quick temporary place where I was going to put something became more, much more problematic than I ever anticipated. Yeah. It, <laughs> I, I'm just laughing on that because I, I remember that it's like, oh, you know what, just, just spin up this workload or spin up that workload or just dump it here, point here, click there. So you think of, you know, low code, no code, how things are getting easier for developers to not have to work as hard as they as they used to you you used to be or used to have to be like super smart to to code and develop things but speaking to the today's developer right and when we're talking like 
whatever as code, uh, infrastructure is code. Policy is code, infrastructure is code, everything's code now. Yeah, so what, what steps can be taken, let's say specifically around like, cause GitHub is, is used a lot. Uh, let's say GitHub repositories, because I, I, I actually saw a company that their entire business is just off of securing GitHub repositories. So what steps can can be taken to to make sure that things like GitHub or Git repositories are secure? Yeah, so it, it's definitely a, a number of steps that can be taken that are uh, uh, dependent upon your background seemingly there. Uh, you know, that's just basic. But things like obviously ensuring role-based access control, ensure that only the people that need to get to certain repositories can get to them avoiding populating sensitive information in those Git repositories like API keys or access keys to your cloud credentials, those various mechanisms. Um, in addition to that, audit logging. Um, I've been told in the past I love audit logs. I do really, I love the idea of audit logs because it shows what's going on in the environment and then being able to have a way to, to review those to say, okay, you know what? The people that we expect to be accessing the system are accessing the system and, and not in a, a manner that, that seems uh, strange. And so, hold on, you, yeah. you say you love audit logging? That's some nerdy stuff, man. Like I, I, I do. <laughs> I, I do love audit. I, I love a good audit log. I, I love pulling out potential metrics in terms of usage, both from a, a product or a platform standpoint, to be able to show how the platform is being utilized, but also from a very much a security standpoint in being able to realize, okay, this is this is what's going on as opposed to what my intent is. Mm, okay. Got it. Got it. And I, you are a smart guy, man. I, I, I remember when I met you back at Puppet, I'm, I was like, this guy is super smart. Um, and so, you know, one thing that I, I want to get your opinion on as well, and maybe cut, maybe go onto the personal side of kind of like what encourages you in, in particular about where the industry is headed, and mostly from, from a data protection perspective or standpoint, Martez? Yeah, so there's a number of things that encourage me. I mean, some of the things we talked about in terms of zero trust, um, certainly continuing to, to advance what we're doing from, you certainly see a number of startups pop up in terms of being able to leverage AI or ML to, to help provide data protection. Um, and, and I think in, in many ways, there's also going to be a, a situation and scenario where we start to, to get to a point where we're looking a little more holistically at how we can provide better data protection, both from that initial access in terms of how we talked about the ransomware in terms of potentially having quotas and, and ways in which to be able to throttle access to better align with typically how people are going to utilize the platform or, or whatever software. Um, and then certainly um, how we continue to, to look at the value of data, whether that be actual customer data and providing a greater emphasis on what that actually means to organizations. And unfortunately, that may be fines that are, are continuing to, to be more punitive to, to show that, yes, personal information is very important, and we've got to have a greater focus on that and emphasis, as well as the, the as code, infrastructure as code, policy as code, all those things. This, this one is a personal question here, Martez, and just wanted to you know, get your take here. And you've been a director of technical marketing at Morpheus Data for quite some time now. So you have your footing, you know what works, you know what doesn't work, you know what makes for an excellent tech marketing engineer. So in your opinion, what makes for a great 
technical marketing engineer? Yeah. So one of the things that it particularly stands out for me is empathy for who your audience is. And what I mean by that is mine is my background's from more of the traditional systems administrator. I was a VMware administrator, did some VDI, did some Active Directory, and, and understanding that based upon who your target audience is, and oftentimes remembering the pain or some thinking about some of the challenges that they are faced with. And so it's particularly one of the challenges that those that have a similar background to mine, as well as who are our target audiences as a company, is those that are having to, to deal with learning a Kubernetes, learning infrastructure as code such as Terraform, dealing with a, a public cloud or two, having to learn something like Ansible or a puppet or a chef, and, and being expected still to, to do all of these things at an incredible rate as organizations look to, to transition to the cloud or look to move deeper into the cloud. And in particular for me, understanding that as I've gotten older, uh, having a, a wife and, and children, understanding that it doesn't make sense for everyone to spend 80 to 100 hours a, a week delving into the tech and, and understanding every bell and whistle and every nuance. And so from a marketing tech marketing standpoint, that means how can I be as concise and as succinct as possible, get to the point of, of what the meat and the goodness is, but also, yes, still having some, some informational pieces to balance out the, you got a, a job to do. Mm-hmm. Plus, right. I also need to give you some nuggets to help you along that way. Yeah, and I, I love how you put that. I, I wouldn't have thought that you would have said, you came out the gate with empathy. I was like, man, that's good. That is some some really, really, really good advice there. And also just, you know, loving the creation process and, you know, creating new content, whether it's a white paper, a blog post, or a video, right? And standing in front of a crowd and preparing to to do a, a speaking session, et cetera. So I think that, that all of those things do make for a, a great tech marketing engineer as well. I, I did a stint myself. I, I think that that's, that's great advice, Martez. And also one thing for you before we go, what what is on your nightstand? What are you reading? Is there something that, that you are reading? Any book recommendations right now for the Gumbo audience? Uh, in particular, I'm actually delving a, a little bit deeper into Kubernetes. So the, the certified Kubernetes developer um, is is the part of the content I'm, I'm looking to, to pick up. Uh, I've been around Kubernetes quite some time. I've, I've tinkered for, for quite a period of time. And, and now I'm looking more to just the, the formalized route of getting that certification. Um, outside of that, uh, from a, a personal standpoint, it's it things in re- regards to understanding best uh, about finance and, and even things in regards to, to dealing with children or just continuing to, to upskill my person, yeah. not just the, the technologist. Martez, it's definitely been a pleasure to have you on the gumbo once again. As usual, you always drop those nugget bombs and just information that always blows my socks off and i'm sure those that are listening will will also gain some nuggets as well so thank you for once again being on the show yeah thanks for having me and always a pleasure thank you for listening to data protection gumbo please follow us on twitter at dpg podcast and join our backup and recovery professionals linkedin group just search backup and recovery professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.